turn to John 17. My battery running out, Grant? See if it stops and then might I need to change it. John 17, uh, it's on one of two pages. Again, sorry about that. Uh, we are seeking to remedy this issue. Let me add my welcome to Kieron's. Uh, my name's Mark, I'm also one of the, the pastors here at the church. We're gonna read this prayer. This is a prayer of Jesus and it is uh, the longest recorded prayer of his, and it's quite, it's quite rich. It's okay if you, if as we're reading, you kind of think, well, what does he mean by that? Don't worry, we'll slow down as we go through it, but we're going to read uh, the, whole, the whole chapter. This is the night before his death. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son." that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and no one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And so reads God's word. If this is your first week with us or you missed last week, we have just begun a new series. Uh, We've begun a series looking at the doctrine of the Trinity. And last week, we've uh, been selling to you why the Trinity would be a good thing to look at. Uh, I'll give you a brief overview that uh, if, as Christians believe, uh, we are made in God's image, at the very least, wouldn't it make sense to get to know what that God is like? Uh, So that's a reason why we're studying the Trinity. And what we noted, what the big idea of last week was, was that the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that they are marked by a relationship of love, that they're marked by a relationship of other person-centered love. We had people around for lunch uh, last week, and they were saying, oh, is that other person-centered loving? So we know that people were listening. The people that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they, they love outside of themselves, They do not love themselves. There's no hint of self-love here. It is constantly always to another. And so this week we come to to the Father, to God the Father. And we'll be doing the Son, Holy Spirit, and then we'll be finishing it off with a final talk. Now, in recent years, uh, we've moved away from the language of God as Father. We don't, uh, we tend to bulk at that language. We don't like that language for a number of reasons, I think. First off, it's just not very, uh, it's just not very nice to other religions. It's not very ecumenical. You know, uh, Allah is never known as Father, so we, t- we, kinda, we ditch that language, then we can have more kind of dialogue and conversation with, our, uh, with Muslim uh, friends. That's one reason. Another reason why we move away from it, quite frankly, is because a lot of us have earthly fathers that aren't very nice. Uh, I don't have a great relationship with, uh, with my dad, and some of you, I'm sure, kind of share in that experience. Even the, even the, the best fathers have their flaws, and so we don't always want to, uh, to, to use that language of father for God, because what we tend to do is we think about our earthly father and his deficiencies, and we project it upwards. And so we don't want to to do that. Third reason why we don't like to talk about father is because father carries with it uh, ideas of authority, ideas of being uh, in charge or oppressive. We don't like that idea of of power, of somebody having the, the will to power over us. Because to our Western ears, authority and love aren't compatible. If you're in authority over someone, 
you probably don't love them. The state is an authority over you, but you know, Leo Faradkar isn't your best bud and is telling you how much he loves you. Love and authority tend to be incompatible. We say things like, if you love something, you will set it free. If you love something, you'll not be an authority over it. And so you cannot claim to be in authority and claim to be loving in our Western mindset. Connected with that, too, is the, the idea that if you're in submission, if you are under someone's authority, you are somehow lesser. You are of lesser value because you are the one who is a subject. So we don't like that. We, re, we rebel against that, and we rebel against that because we place our value in our autonomy and the fact that we're individuals. We don't like authority. And so we tend not to talk about the language of father. Over the next two weeks, I would like us to keep in mind two really important questions. The first is this. Can you be subject and of equal value? Can you be subject to someone and of equal value with them? Is that possible? That's the first question I'd like you to keep in your mind. The second one is, can you have authority and be genuinely loving? Can you be an authority and be genuinely loving? To begin to answer this second question at least, we're going to have a look at what the Father's like. Have a look at his, his character. We're going to look at how he relates to his Son. Because um, the reason why that's important is because how he relates to his son is how he relates to us. Because if we're trusting in Jesus, if we call ourselves Christians, then he, God the Father, loves us in that same way. So it's really important to see how does the Father relate to the Son? How does the Father love the Son? What's his love like? And that, in part, is what John 17 tells us. We're not going to have time or the space to go verse by verse through it. When we eventually come to preach a series in John, which we'd like to do, we'll probably break this down into several weeks. Uh, but I'm going to bring out some key things. Keep the passage open. Scan your eye down. What is the Father's love like? Did anybody notice a repeated word? The word give. Given. The ones that you gave me. Have a look down. What does the Father give to the Son? Well, he gives glory. That's what Jesus asked for in verse 1. We see it again in verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given them. Verse 24, uh, that you can see uh, the glory that you have given me. What else does he give? He gives authority. Verse 2. Since you have given him authority, that Jesus is speaking of himself in the third person, since you have given him authority over all flesh. Verse 4, Jesus has been given a work that, is, that has been accomplished. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He has given disciples. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Verse 7, now, 
Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. Everything Jesus has, has been given to him by a gift from the Father. Do you see? We're just in the first seven verses, and there's this constant generosity of the Father. Isn't it wonderful? He's constantly giving to his Son that he gives words, verse 8, for I have given them the words that you gave me. That compares again in verse 14. I have given them your word. Jesus has been given a name, verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. And then verse 20 and verse 24. The Father has given to the Son, not just the disciples, but all believers. I do not ask for these only, verse 20, but also for those who will believe through their word. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. What is the Father's love like? It's generous, isn't it? It's aboundingly generous. That's what our Heavenly Father is like. That's what the first person of the Trinity is like. That is what His love looks like. It is a generous outpouring of love to His Son. Now, come back to our questions. Note two things. First, He loves His Son. He loves His Son so much to give Him these things. And yet what is presupposed by the giving it is, the, is that he has the authority to give it in the first place. Do you see how we're beginning to answer these questions? The Father has the authority to give in his son, to his Son, and he gives out of love to his Son. We're beginning to see that you can actually be in authority and genuinely loving. How does that change your view of God? We don't We've grown up in a, in, in a culture which sees religion as oppressive, it sees God as a, as a judge, as a, as, a, as, a, as a wretched creature who just wants you to live a better life. Do you see how the authority of God and the love of God are actually two compatible things? He loves his son and he gives all of these things to him, everything Jesus has. He has that authority to give in the first place. We're just going to pick up three three types of giving, or three of those uh, things that I listed, and look at them a little bit further. The first thing that, that we're going to look at is the fact that the Father gives the Son glory. He gives the Son glory. That's what Jesus is asking for right there in verse 1. And again, notice, God is not selfish. He's not selfish for his own worship, for his own glory. The Father is giving it to his Son, that the Son may give it to the Father. Again, other person-centeredness within the Godhead. He gives glory. Now, when, when does Jesus ask for it? Look at verse 1. When, Father, The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. What does he mean by the hour? Well, he's mentioned this before. 
We've seen it back when he turned the water into wine. And what does he say to his mother? What does he say to Mary when Mary goes to him and says, could you do something about the, the, lack, of, the lack of Merlot? He says, woman, my hour has not yet come. So this hour thing has been building. There's been kind of a little bit of mystery around the hour and what he means by the hour through John's gospel. And now he says that the hour has come. Now remember, when is he praying this prayer? It's the night before he dies. The hour in John's gospel, the hour that Jesus is referring to, is the cross. It's his death. And he's saying, glorify your son. Now hold on a second. A bloodied, beaten, crucified Jesus and glory don't seem like they go together. And yet, in Jesus' thinking and in the thinking of John's gospel, that's exactly what we're supposed to take away. That the blazing center of God's glory is the cross of the Lord Jesus, where God reconciles humanity back to himself, where he brings humanity back into a relationship so that we can call God our Father. You want to see God glorify his Son? Then we must look to that first Good Friday. The cross is the glorification of his Son. It is the culmination of all of Jesus' obedience. Of all of, of all of what Jesus was sent to do, it is the blazing center of God's glory. And as Jesus asks for this glory, is it selfish? No, it's not. You see other person-centered love even in this. He gives his glory back to the Father. And then in verses 20 and 21, he wants all of the believers to share in that glory, to behold that glory, to be invited into it. This is the amazing thing about the cross of the Lord Jesus, that it is the means by which we are caught up into that relationship of mutual glorification, that we see it, we're invited into it. We are loved by the Father because we trust in the Son. He loves us in that same way. He becomes our Father because of the cross of the Lord Jesus. That is how the way is made possible, how the way is made open. That is what many people don't get, that that dark day was one of the most glorious days, the most glorious day in human history, where the Father glorified the Son and invited us to behold that glory. The second thing that the Father gives is that he gives people. You see it there in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Who's in view here? In view here in the immediacy is the disciples, the 12, or rather the 11. You notice the little uh, enigmatic term, the son of destruction, a reference to Judas that all have been given to the Father except for the the Son of Destruction, that the Scripture may be fulfilled. But not only the disciples, he has given all who believe. 
Again, verse 20, verse 24, I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe through their word, through the apostles' testimony. And where does Jesus want them to be? Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. Now, this is quite simply astounding. And again, it is a common idea in John's gospel that the Father has given people to the Son. Let me give you another example. John 6, 37, all the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. I will never drive away. Or John 10, 27, 29, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. This is the ground, is the basis of Christian assurance. That, that settled confidence that we are loved by God. It's not arrogance because we don't deserve it. We did nothing to earn it. That we have been given by the Father to the Son. Another example would be John 3.35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. That includes us. Let me say it this way. You, if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus, you are a love gift from the Father to the Son. A love gift. Isn't that beautiful? What does that say about how valuable you are or how loved you are. You are a love gift in eternity from the Father to the Son, because the Father loves the Son. What does that say about your assurance, your, your settled, humble confidence that, that, that your believing will result in your, uh, in your entry into or your participation in the new creation? You're a love gift in eternity. All that the Father has given me will come to me, and I will never cast them out. Isn't that beautiful? Kieran and I used to be friends with an old retired clergyman who uh, went to see his Lord uh, just over a year ago. And he would suffer from time to time with, um, with bouts of darkness, bouts of depression. And I remember him telling me one time that, that he always came back to John 6, 37, even in those darkest of moments, that those who the Father has given me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. That's the beauty of Christian assurance. That's the depth of Christian assurance. That's the goodness and the surety of Christian assurance. And it is not really anything to do with us. It is not because we're the most talented or the most beautiful or the most morally upright. It's because the Father loves the Son. Do you see? Third, 
He has given words. The Father has given the Son words. See that in verse 8 and verse 14. This brings us back to the question that a lot of people ask these days, very fundamental question of, is God knowable? Can I really know what God is like? Is he knowable? It's very fashionable to say no. It, it sounds more humble to say no. It sounds more humble just to kind of rest in doubt. That, that seems like the, the more human thing to do. Can I gently but firmly submit to you that it's not humble? In fact, it's arrogant. It's arrogant because what you're saying of God is that God is not big enough, He's not powerful enough to make Himself clear in a way that you understand. Do you see how it's not humble? I am not saying for one second, and I said it last week, that we will know everything about God. It's just not possible. But what I am saying is we can know true things about him. We can never know exhaustive truth about anything. You can't know exhaustive truth about the chair that you're sitting on, let alone God. But you can know true things about it. And so while we won't have exhaustive knowledge, we will have true knowledge nonetheless. And where do we access this truth? Where do we access this knowledge of God? We get it from Jesus. Jesus has been given those words, and he gives them to us. He gives them to the disciples, and the disciples pass it on through the writing of the apostles, through what you're holding on your lap. That's how God's self-disclosure comes to us. It comes to us through the Son. Think of the opening verses, or, uh, the opening verse just of the book of Hebrews. Uh, I remember learning it in the old King James, at diverse times and sundry places, God spake to his forefathers by the prophets. What that means is, in many times and in various ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the, by the prophets. But now, in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son. And that son is the exact imprint of his being. We want to know what God is like, then we must come to Jesus. This means that because Jesus has come, because he has been given the words by his Father, and because he has passed them on, it means that we can really know what God is like. We are in such a privileged position. This God who hid Moses in the cleft of the rock, this God who dwells in inapproachable light, has sent a son to say exactly what he's like. And you hold it on your lap. He has made himself knowable. Now, note one thing, just, uh, just in brackets, just parenthetically. If Jesus has made the Father known, then the Son must be divine. It cannot be an accurate disclosure if the Son does not share in the same nature as the Father. The only reason why we are able to say that what we have is an accurate revelation of who God is, is because, as we've read in these verses time and time again, like verse 21, Father, you are in me and I am in you, because they share the same nature. And he beheld the Father's glory in eternity. So what is this word? 
This word is ultimately the message of the gospel, that Jesus came as a man to rescue people, that while we were created for a relationship with God, while we were created to love God and to value him above all else and to find him as the source of our joy, we turned aside and found our joy, our love, our value in something else, in something created rather than the creator, that we became turned in on ourselves like narcissists, loving ourselves rather than loving the God who made us. It is the message of Jesus' death to untwist our love disorder, to give us a new heart, to orientate us upwards to God and outwards to other people. And this word, it changes us. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. This word is active. It works in our life. It makes us more like Jesus. It changes our desires. It changes what we value. It changes where we find joy. That's, all, that's what sanctify means. It makes us more perfect. It makes us more saintly. It makes us more like Jesus. It makes us love right again. It makes us other person-centered in our love. Not self-loving. So, what does this all mean? What does all of this, all the generosity of the Father, the invitation to participate in that, what does that all mean? Well, three things as we finish. First, it speaks to our unity. It speaks to what unity actually looks like you know, we use it as a buzzword, especially in church circles, especially you know, within churches and denominations that don't tend to agree with one another. We can't like to talk a lot about unity. But what kind of unity? What does it mean? So Jesus prays that we may be one just as the Father is one. It's ultimately got to be unity around Jesus Christ, around the divine Son, we cannot have unity with those who do not agree with us and who Jesus is. It is not a shallow unity. It is not unity simply around a cause or a philosophy. It is a unity that is marked by love, other person-centered love, us, city church, one another, loving each other, loving each other in, as we noted last week, an unenvious way, delighting in the other's good. That's the kind of love that we are to participate in. That is the kind of love that we are to be marked by. That's the kind of unity that we need. Secondly, why this matters. It reminds us that the gospel isn't actually ultimately about us. We're not at the center of this thing. We're really not. The cross isn't about us, not primarily. It is about the Father and his desire to glorify his Son. As Jesus stood in Gethsemane, he did not pray, oh, Father, you know, this is hard, but, you know, I love those wretched sinners just so much. No, he said, your will be done. Now, don't mishear me. We are amazingly rich beneficiaries of this. God's love for his son spills over into space and time and it comes to us. 
But we're not ultimately at the center. It's not ultimately all about us. It's about Jesus. And it's about his glory. And that's a good thing. Why is that a good thing? Because that actually helps us grasp just how much the Father loves us. If this is how much he loves the Son and this is what the Son does, then you come to verses like the most famous one in the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We come to that verse and verses like it and go, wow, that love really is intense. Because the Father loves the Son with a perfect love. And the world, well, the world in John's gospel is the, is the, is the, is the, twisted, uh, is the twisted mess. That's what the word means in John's gospel. It is all of humanity arrayed in, in enmity, in wanting to attack and rebel against God. And God loves it. That's what's so amazing about the love of God. As a guy called D.A. Carson says, God's love is not amazing because the world is so big. It's amazing because it's so bad. God loves broken, sinful, treasonous people. He loves us with all of our with all of our love deficiencies, with all of our running here, there, and everywhere, looking for value, looking for comfort, looking for safety, looking for joy in all of the wrong places, God loves us because he loves his son. This is our generous father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are supremely generous, that that is what your love is like, that you are generous to your Son, and that we benefit from that, that that love and that generosity, it flows from Christ to us. And we are such rich and yet undeserving beneficiaries of it. We thank you for the great love with which you loved your son. We thank you for, uh, for his obedience to you, that he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And that has made the way open. That we can now be caught up into that relationship, to see that glory and to experience that love, to experience the assurance of those words, all that the Father has given me will come to me, and none will I cast out. We thank you for uh, these great truths in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.